You are now listening to Carly's Couch. I'm Carly. And I'm Lex. In this podcast, we discuss a wide array of topics about life and how to live your best life. Whatever that looks like for you. (laughs) Hope y'all enjoy. Hello, hello, hello. Happy whatever day it is that you're tuning in to The Bouch. Welcome to Carly's Couch. Today we have an addition with us on the couch, <laughs> the virtual couch. Yo, and he's wearing a pretty snazzy jacket, so if you're not watching, you should at least log on to see his jacket. And he has a snazzy background, too, so definitely encourage our listeners to also watch this episode for sure. Absolutely. Um, I'm super excited. I'm generally always excited, but very, very, very excited this week for our special guest, um, Daniel Forchio. I met him at an HBO event about um, storytelling that they held in Los Angeles, specifically highlighting Black storytellers um, within the LA area. And we just kind of kept in touch. And when I met him, he was a CFO of an organization, and now he's a CEO. So I'm shout out to Lex for about to read this bio and see how he got there. <laughs> right. You see how she's making me do the reading. <laughs> yes, we're excited. We're going to introduce Daniel K. Forchio, um, you know, officially. He is the Chief Executive Officer of Represent Justice, and as a career nonprofit executive with over 13 years of prior experience in nonprofit and advocacy work, Daniel leads the organization's social impact efforts through strategic audience and community engagement, partnerships, and prior to joining Represent Justice, Daniel served as a Fulfillment Fund CFO and COO, where he provided leadership and oversight to the organization's operational activities, aiding in business decisions geared towards improving sustainability while maximizing impact. Um, he's also worked for the Rabin Group, a Robin Group in Washington, D.C., overseeing operations of eight separately managed nonprofit organizations there and fiscal sponsors. He's also worked for the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, Um, a multi-billion dollar conservation grant maker, and notably aided in the development and design of the reporting infrastructure for a variety of major funding sources, including awarded payments for the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in 2010. He's also treasurer on the board of directors of Guns Down America, which is a gun violence prevention group, as well as the Fulfillment Fund. Daniel, thank you for being here with us today. How does it feel to have so much alliteration in your bio? And to hear it back to you. That's a lot of words. I actually should probably redo that because, you know, the elements of a good story includes being concise. So that's actually a nice reminder. Thank you for the warm introduction and thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. How does it feel to hear your own bio? I'm just curious, especially with folks who are doing so much good and have that mission in their life. Is it just like, oh, yeah, that's I just got to do a lot of things. Or do you really sit back and think about how much you're really changing the game out here? Uh, I don't think I don't reflect on it uh, as much in that way. I reflect on it a little bit more as far as what my growth has been and, and who I was when I said that's how I define myself versus who I who I am now. Uh, it's really interesting that Carly and I met at that Our Stories uh, event or the Stories We Tell event for HBO because something that uh, has become so important in this work that I do with Represent Justice is understanding of story and understanding of your own story. And so when I think about it, I sort of, it sort of transports me back to what my mindset was around social justice at each point. You know, when we were talking about uh, educational access, when we're talking about gun violence prevention and, and how that has matured over the years into, you know, the work that I do on a day-to-day basis around the prison system now. Actually, I want to hear a little more about that story because you have such vast experience. When you first started, did you know you wanted to end up here in the incarceration space or what was your, you know, 
catalyst for joining like the social impact space? Yeah, I, I wanted to do social justice work for sure. Um, but in Washington, D.C., which is sort of where I'm from, I'm from the DMV, I'm from the M, um, social justice and advocacy work in particular works in a very linear way in some circles. And so because you're so close to Congress, because you're so close to the White House and the different kind of levers of power there, it's like, let me get this PowerPoint together. Let me get my stack of reports together. Let me take this Uber to Capitol Hill and let's talk about the issue. And so what has matured for me over the years and how I thought about social change back then to how I think about it now is that that is less and less how people connect to things. Uh, and more and more how people connect to things is with an awareness of story and with an idea that they can then act around. And so it's less about necessarily facts or pie charts or uh, you know, reports and more about what is the story that we're telling ourselves is that story true? Uh, and if not, how do we change it? And that is, you know, that is my day to day. And, and you know, my interest in uh, Represent Justice came when I moved to Los Angeles and, you know, met Scott Budnick, uh, who is the founder producer of Just Mercy. Uh, he's one of our board members and, you know, just a successful filmmaker as well as activist. He started the uh, Anti-Recidivism Coalition, who's one of our great partners to this day. and. Uh, Heidi Nell, who's also an impact entertainment executive, who really just were talking about the importance of media to get people uh, to understand a story collectively, all at the same time, all ready to act, all on the same page, and understanding that that was the future of advocacy is what caused me to join and lead, represent justice, um, and it's just been a privilege and an honor since then. Thank you for sharing that. So having that understanding of you know, the mission and, and the impact that you want to have, what does that look like in your day-to-day? -day? You've mentioned day-to-day, -day, but like, what are you literally physically, mentally, like, what are you doing day-to-day -day for Represent Justice? So when we tell stories, we have two objectives. One is to tell stories about the justice system that shift people's opinion. Two is to build the capacity of people who've been harmed or impacted by the justice system. The way that we accomplish the first objective of storytelling is through either film campaigns. So we'll uh, organize around a film that's about the justice system that has a narrative that hasn't been told or hasn't been told enough. And so we'll connect audiences to the actual present day implications of that film, laws that they can support, elected leaders that they can support, organizations that they can support, and also an awareness of the narrative. So we try to break down the actual false um, you know, associations that they may have around the justice system. So, for example, the justice system makes mistakes. The movie Just Mercy was about a guy being wrongfully incarcerated and going, getting uh, sent to death row. And so the stakes were incredibly high. We were able to do a lot of narrative shift around that campaign. On the oh, other hand... Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. Can I ask about that? Because I'm like, wait a minute. So you're, you guys are film producers. So are you guys a part of the production here? Or is it more so you have the alliances to almost like your marketers. I'm a marketer. So when you said that, I'm like, oh, that's a campaign. So are you helping to see how can we take pop culture and things that are happening and create also aligning campaigns that educate? So we run the actual campaigns. Hmm. So we actually will design like, what is the action? Like, what is this story getting at? We don't do the production. The production is what, you know, Hollywood does and what other folks do. We organize and identify what is the actual action? What are people, what can people learn from this? What organizations can they support? 
And then we actually just run the campaign. So we'll give out, in the case of Just Mercy, we'll give out the grant dollars to the organizations. We'll tell people to support them. We'll organize advocacy uh, efforts that are in line with the film and pass legislation and things of that nature. So we'll actually do the work of the film campaign. And part of that work is connecting people to the film as a resource for educating their constituents or for getting access to a legislator or to the general public. So part of it is being a connector and then other parts of it are just being on the ground, using the film as a tool or just talking about the issues themselves mm. which outside of the film. And is it the producers or the team around the film that reach out to you and look for that? Or is it you guys who are looking to fill that void? I'm just curious. I wondered how much impact they actually put into this knowingly. Yeah. Uh, so we've, we've been approached since Just Mercy. We've been approached by probably over close to 40 different filmmakers. That's um, big. Yeah. yeah. All who want to tell stories about the justice system. Now, that's a good thing uh, on its face. However, as we know that stories can also be harmful and stories that aren't told intentionally and with the right voices in mind and with the right voices center can also be harmful. So we have a strategic plan and a process that tells us which stories or which uh, pieces of content film uh, are actually impactful based on our strategy. And then we pick a select few from those. We meet with our community partners. We meet with our ambassadors. So the other uh, piece that I wanted to get to is that we have uh, over 20 ambassadors who have served collectively nearly 300 years in the prison system, uh, which is almost impossible to think about what that means in terms of life experience, but also expertise, understanding of solutions, understanding of what's wrong, uh, connectivity to these issues. So there, the ambassador program exists not just as an advisory component of understanding you know, what films and what projects and what laws should we be advocating for. But we also invest in their leadership and in their ability to tell their own story. That's the second form of storytelling that really gets to how do we bring impact and capacity to the people who've been harmed by the system. That's our ambassador program. And so with that ambassador program, you know, we're just uplifting people's ability to tell their own story um, for greater and greater effects in their own communities and at their own organizations. So these two forms of, that's my day-to-day, um, either running film campaigns that are around really impactful criminal justice issues or uplifting the voices of leaders in the field who've been impacted, um, but who just need that platform to tell their story or that set of skills. That's the thing that I think is not understood as much about narrative change is that it, it takes work to be able to tell your, first it takes the inner healing work of healing from what you've gone through. But then it goes into taking, you know, media training, repetition, understanding how to tell your story to different audiences, uh, how you anchor your story in a, in a combative setting where people are questioning, why did you do this? And, and, and you shouldn't have done this and all of these other things. So that's a real, that's real work that we do with our ambassadors. Uh, and we do it because they're the storytellers ultimately that we want to be working with. And they're the storytellers that are going to shift the narrative. Is learning how to be a storyteller something that kind of happened over time? I remember you mentioning the example of just, you know, going to Capitol Hill and then recognizing like, oh, this isn't really the way they absorb it. Is that something that has always been a part of your story and come naturally? Or, or is that something you've learned as far as those kind of storytelling skills? I, you know, I think it's genetic. 
my dad was a writer. That's how he uh. my that's how he met my mom. Uh, <laughs> shout out to my dad. They must have been a good um, writer. <laughs> yeah, he's a great writer. Um, and I, and he passed that down and 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 sort of impressed that upon me. And and so I've always loved to write. And in fact. The reason that I moved to Los Angeles a few years back and the reason that I was at that HBO event uh, with Carly is because I'm just fascinated with the process of telling your story um, and being able to mix the process of telling your story with advocacy became a dream job to this day. Um, but I've always loved storytelling and the idea of, of connecting to audiences. It's, it's just an incredible moment uh, when someone is telling a story and you're so immersed and you're just in their shoes. And the idea that you can use that to change people's minds about the justice system is, is really powerful to me. Absolutely. Um, so I was reading on the website about Represent Justice that it started as a two-year campaign for Just Mercy, but now it's an ongoing um, process. Can you talk a little bit about like what y'all accomplished with Just Mercy? And um, you already discussed the mission, but like maybe a vision y'all have like upcoming? Yes, absolutely. So the Just Mercy campaign was huge because what the Just Mercy film was a studio release. And so just incredible amounts of audiences were going to see it. Um, what was most important for us is that it be rooted in uplifting the community partners that we worked with, uplifting the ambassadors who served as surrogates, you know, talking about their stories right after screening discussions and through programming. Um, you know, we reached over 100,000 people um, and many of these people were outside of the choir, meaning that they weren't people that really thought of themselves as advocates in any sense. They had walked into a movie theater or walked into some element of the programming and had left with the feeling that there was more that they could do. And so we had activated this audience. Um, in addition to that, we were supporting these community partners and the film was allowing them to reach legislators in some cases that they hadn't reached, governors in some cases that they haven't reached, and it was being really impactful for their policy efforts as well. Um, at the same time, we had those incredible ambassadors who were doing incredible speaking and, and uh, receiving grants from the organization as well. So at the end of that campaign, uh, we had done all of this impact. I should also say that we partnered with the NBA to bring players into facilities, which is something that we continue through our Play for Justice initiative to this day. At the end of that, uh, we had built up all of this infrastructure and there was such demand for more. You know, now we're talking about end of 2020. We're talking about uh, people really understanding that the criminal justice system is broken and that they want to do something about it. And, you know, we sort of met as a group. We talked with our ambassadors and we talked about, you know, so often these campaigns, they just sort of disappear. The film is done, we're done, but the work is still there and the intent and the audience is still there, there are more stories to tell, there's more for us to do. And so at that point, we went into deep strategic planning with our partners and ambassadors and decided, you know, to really emerge as a narrative change organization, telling more stories. You know, the Just Mercy story is an incredible one, but it's also one that's about innocence. And so much of the justice system is not actually about innocence. So much of the justice system is about people's redemption, it's about the incentives that are created that drive mass incarceration. It's about alternative looks to health and safety and wellness and all these other things. And we wanted that and those types of stories to be a greater and greater focus because um, that's where the hard narrative work is around the justice system. 
Yeah, because it's easy, you know, to watch a movie and see, you know, they're innocent. And so you can feel for that. Mm -hmm. But there are folks who they may have did something, but now it's not worth that much time or there's just so many nuances to these stories. And then that being said, what is your vision, the organization's vision to what justice looks like reimagined? Reimagined justice to me and to the organization means divesting from systems that are formed around punishment and outmoded ideas of good versus evil that are racist um, and instead investing into human-centered wellness. Um, so that means better elected leadership that doesn't think that cracking down on crime in the sort of stereotypical sense is the answer, that doesn't think that more prisons or spending on prisons and policing is the answer, but a system that really recognizes that accountability can also be achieved by investing in people's potential. Uh, when you look at other, other justice systems outside of the US, many of them where, where crime is very low, um, the loss of liberty is all the punishment that they need. You know, it's the US that has, uh, you know, these layers of dehumanization that stuffs people in really uh, crowded sort of confined facilities where violent subcultures can develop, where you, they'll force you to work for 14 cents an hour and take you away from your rehabilitative programming, where you've got a for-profit industry that can kind of exploit that type of labor. This is, a, this is the worst prison system in the country and it's not working. So for us, um, something that's centered around humanity, something that acknowledges humanity and that really invests in people's wellness as a way to achieve safety. Um, and that's, to me, that's, that's a growing and winning model for transforming the justice system, but it requires investment, it takes time, and it requires us to break down some of these myths that have people scared uh, about what that means. Mm -hmm. You touched on a few things that I was thinking, and I was gonna ask how you felt about other countries when sometimes you'll see a photo and you're like, that looks like a hotel room, or it looks like a whole apartment. Um, and hearing about other methods. And yet here, you mentioned something about mindsets about good and evil. And I think a lot of times, whether it be due to religious upbringing, whether it be due to just people's mindset, right? In America, it's something about do everything yourself. Or if you're in this position, then you're not as good. And, you know, somebody being good or evil, there's no in between. How do you shift those mindsets or, or does that need to shift in order for people to care more in order for you know congress and whoever else to to change like where does that start yeah it, it does need to shift within some people i will say you know part of this is just the organizers who have the solutions and who are doing who are doing great work need to be supported by the public that is already on our side so if you're if you agree with the things that i'm saying on this podcast but you're not supporting an organization who is working to, to do this work, that re reconsider because that is part of the problem is the unharnessed potential of the public that is already in agreement that this is what we want and will respond so in a poll, but aren't actively taking supportive actions towards it. On the other hand, there are people whose minds need to change. And so how do we do that? Well, uh, one of our beliefs in shifting culture is through proximity. And the reason why we bring NBA teams into facilities is because just think how many people go into a prison facility in their lifetime. Um, not many. 
It is a transformative experience. What you go through is you surrender all of your belongings, all of your identity as they stamp your wrist, as you give up everything, you become an object. Even as a visitor, you become an object. And so most people ask this question at an event here in Los Angeles um, a few months back. I said, you know, raise your hand. It's a few hundred people. I said, raise your hand if you've actually ever been to a prison facility. And a few people raised their hand, actually, far more than what I would have thought. And I thought for a second and I said, I'm not talking about Alcatraz. I said, let's exclude Alcatraz. Let's exclude the tourist uh, visit that you can take in San Francisco. Every single hand went down. And yet, I guarantee you that those people engage with issues of justice on a daily basis. They engage with it through the media. They engage with it as they sort of um, think or talk at the dinner table. So people form conclusions from a distance. People form word associations from a distance. And proximity is getting up close, going into a place where these actions are happening, or meeting a person who's been impacted. You know, that is that type of proximity is where people's minds ultimately change. And so it's a strategy of ours, you know, if we're doing a screening or whatever it might be, that we create a moment of proximity. You're going to meet somebody who's got a story to tell. And it, it, it will be good, bad, ugly, but it is going to be their story. You're going to meet them and they're going to talk to you and they're going to give you a real life implication around the things that you talk about at your dinner table. And so when people start to associate people around the justice system, they act differently and think differently and they'll vote differently and they become harder to scare and they become harder to, to sort of um, support the status quo. Um, to your point, Lex, as far as, you know, how did we get here a little bit? You know, in the 90s, this whole super predator myth, you know, we, we saw, you know, the 1994 crime bill we were building a prison for about 15 years every 10 days. I mean, literally for about 15 years, we filled them with black and brown people overwhelmingly, including here in California. Um, so that narrative was sort of widely accepted across all sorts of political ideologies and socioeconomic ideologies. Um, and, you know, we're now sort of doing the work to undo that. Um, but it's work. It's, it's a lot of work. Isn't it so crazy that you have to do so much work for people to see people? Yeah. It's so interesting. Like, and that can go for whether it's a homeless person or somebody, mm -hmm. you know, who's in jail or Substance abuse. race or whatever. Yeah. But it's, it's so interesting to me that we need that work to see other humans. And most that's likely that's a reflection of our own issues. That's right. And it's getting harder. It's getting, it's getting harder. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's interesting. You said the system is broken. And um, I work with a nonprofit that we do after school programming for kids. We also have been into prisons and stuff. And one of Charlie's favorite quotes is the system isn't broken. It's doing exactly what it was designed to do, dehumanize and, and keep us at bay. What's interesting, what you said, and I never thought about is that most people have never actually been into a prison because I, I had an auntie who was in the state pen when I was little. I would go see her. They had a playground and everything for the kids, um, which I know sounds crazy now. But when I was four, like, that was my auntie. I just knew she was in jail. And then my stepfather also went to visit him in jail and things. And so as someone who cares um, and who has had proximity and who sees people and is actively invested in the community, how can people actually start to support and get involved? Like, what does that look like in addition to retweeting an article or sharing a post on Instagram? 
Yeah. So I'll give you a couple examples of work that, um, well, I'll, I'll actually, I'll give you a, a, an example of work that we did this past year that, that became very impactful. I'll talk a little bit about Oklahoma. Um, so in Oklahoma, we were supporting a public awareness campaign around Julius Jones, uh, which became national uh, news uh, in, the, in the later months, it became national news. Um, that commutation was based on our firm belief that Julius did not receive a fair trial and was innocent of the crimes uh, that he was convicted of. He was sitting on death row, much like Walter McMillan decades before. Um, so we know the system makes mistakes. We know that for every nine people that are sentenced to death row, one of them is exonerated. We know those facts and statistics. Uh, we took a look at Julius' case. Clearly, he hadn't received an adequate defense. His story, by the way, was being told for him by a, to a pardon parole board by a collection of uh, you know, sort of cowboy-minded district attorneys who really liked to, I'm just going to be honest, um, execute people. In the state of Oklahoma, they have execution, they have the death penalty in the Constitution, even though they've exonerated 10 people already. Um, but they continue to do it. So uh, in that case, our work and what we ask for people to do is to sign a petition, uh, a change.org petition, as well as contact the Pardon and Parole Board and let them know that they are aware of Julia's case, that they feel and that they feel like he should be commuted. Much of what happens in the system is that there's not enough pressure. There's not enough public pressure. Um, most people give prosecutors the benefit of a doubt in how they do their job. They give police the benefit of the doubt. They give judges the benefit of a doubt. When the public rises up collectively and contacts their local legislator, all in a very coordinated way, because that coordination is really important, suddenly a partner parole board or a governor's office goes from getting 100 letters a week to getting, in the case of Julius, over 10,000 letters a week. It reached a point where they knew that the public was watching and they knew exactly what the public wanted because they used their voice. Now, we, we sometimes kind of disparage sharing tweets or things like that because it's, it's so easy in some cases, but using your voice in whatever way you have it, using your economic status, you know, if you're a person who's well off and can support an organization doing work, find your lane in ending the injustices of the system and, and do it and make sure that people around you do it as well. In the case of Julius, those letters worked. Those letters did tremendous work. The pardon parole board knew, the governor knew, and at the end of the day, the entire country was watching in the final days what was going to happen. Um, and I truly believe that that chain of people's attention pulled Julius out of what would otherwise 100% have been an execution on November 18th. So that type of work is really important. The, the actions are donate, boycott, volunteer, spread the word. You know, you find your, when, when, I, when we look at the system, we look at the narratives of the system, the culture of the system, the grassroots capacity building, and the structures. The structures are formed politically mostly. That's grass tops. Like, who are you voting for? What are you doing? Um, what legislation is your local congressman supporting? Grassroots, what organizations do you support? Make sure you're supporting some organizations. Those are the receipts. I don't want to see Twitter clapbacks if you're not actually posting receipts from organizations that you're supporting and donating that are doing this work. Culturally, that's the proximity. Get in there with, with the justice system. Get in there with people who've been impacted 
um, change the way that you think and, and speak and talk about. Make sure that you're proximate to their experiences. And then the narrative center the voices of the people who've been impacted. So we're a platform. We've got a few hundred thousand people that, that watch us and watch what we do. We're uplifting voices of people who have been impacted first. That's, that's our goal in building their narrative power. So those are sort of the four pillars and there's actions you can take, but you got to find wherever, everybody's got a little bit of privilege. Find where your privilege is and redistribute it for the good of ending mass incarceration in the justice system. And that's kind of what we advise people to do. And, and listen, stay informed. You got to stay informed. This work is educational as much as it is uh, work of heart. You got to stay informed around what's happening around you. Right now, you know, we're in Los Angeles. Uh, the district attorney is under incredible, incredible sort of um, criticism uh, that's, that's mostly false around crime reporting in LA right now. And so if you approach this from a sort of distance standpoint, you're going to be like, yeah, man, screw this. This, is, this isn't working. You're not actually thinking about the policies that he's uplifted and, and what the impact of those policies are because you're approaching it from a distance. So it's very, very important. Stay educated, stay aware, and take an action that is most meaningful to, to you. I love what you said about, you know, taking your own privilege and thinking about that in a couple of ways of redistributing it, but also kind of thinking about what access do you have and like kind of letting that decide the lane that you choose. Yeah. Um, I have another question for you about who does the work. I've seen over the past few years, there's celebrities who I feel like they're speaking out more some that are more criticized than others. Maybe they're not in the community of black and brown. Somebody else should be doing the work. But then also we see that there are changes that happen. How do you feel about, you know, that conversation of, is it the ends justify the means? And we just want to see change regardless of who's speaking about it or that, hey, we wish that folks would connect with organizations like ours and let us really like make sure all of that impact is there. Well, I always wish that folks would connect with organizations like ours. I'll start there. Um, <laughs> but, but with that being said, um, it depends on how someone of influence shows up. I'll give, you, I'll give you a good example and a bad example. In a good example, a person, usually before any cameras are on, goes into a facility. Uh, Common is famous for doing this, um, but he was doing it before he was famous. And my first thing that I did with Common was my very first week on the job going into California Rehabilitation Center and doing a concert for the people inside. And that concert was about hope and inspiration. Uh, and at that concert, Common was passing a mic to one of our ambassadors who had been incarcerated there and who had sort of started writing and, and honing his artistry and healed through his artistry. And now he's on stage with Common. Bobby Gunn, shout out Bobby. Um, and so, Common is the real deal because he chose to become proximate and let that proximity inform his action and how he redistributes his, his privilege. Um, in, in other scenarios, uh, maybe it's just all about the cameras being on. That can be harmful. Um, if it's all about the cameras being on, you know, when you're working with people who are system impacted, if it's just about the cameras, you are doing an incredibly harmful disservice and disrespect to them and their experiences. One other example that's maybe a little more practical, politicians, people who have discretionary authority to do something, sending words. People say, there was a time at some point where people would say like, hey, pass it on. 
and politicians would tweet something that had to do with uh, social justice or racial justice and be like, pass it on. I'm like, no, I'm passing it to you. I'm passing it to you because you're the one who's supposed to do something about it. You're the last leader. You are an actor in the system who can actually change things. So, so that is an example of picking the wrong lane based on the access that you have. And so, you know, when it comes to politicians, for example, I don't want to hear narrative change. Um, and, and that's true even of a cultural influencer. The cultural influencer shouldn't be, shouldn't be centering their voice. You know, what Common did is he created a platform for Bobby and Bobby's experience to come to the forefront. And that is, was, was how he's shifting the narrative and the culture. So that is a, that's a powerful example, but you gotta choose a lane that doesn't belong to somebody else. And when it comes to narrative, that belongs to the people who've been impacted by the system. Yeah, that's a good way to connect back in what you said about choosing your lane. Um, regardless how much access you have, maybe you just help fund people who can tell their story. Pass the mic, absolutely. That absolutely. clarifies it, all right, thank you. Yeah, no, that, that's great, that's super helpful. Um, I also like you were talking about something that y'all focus on is helping the second pillar or whatever was building the capacity for the system impacted communities. Can you speak a little bit more towards that? Yeah, and you know, the, the way that I define it in a broad, broad sense outside of represent justice, is growing the visibility and influence of the leaders, the movement leaders and their organizations. You can do that through donations, you can do that through volunteering with their organization, you can connect them to people of influence or, or uh, you know, legislators. So growing their, that's, that's an entire theory of, of how we change the system. How we do it at Represent Justice is through narrative power. Because we're so focused on storytelling, it's what if they had the platform and skill sets to tell their stories in a way that's totally crystal, uh, in a way that has all of the healing necessary to tell your own story, and they were able to be connected to audiences. And so what we're doing is we take them through, we actually have a cohort model for our ambassadors uh, that I mentioned before. So over 12 months, we take them through that healing, we take them through practicing to tell their story, even being media trained. You know, People don't really think about all of the elements that go into just telling your story. Sometimes it's a panel discussion, but yeah, sometimes it's a reporter who's gonna question you from a completely uninformed perspective without acknowledging your humanity. They're gonna say, weren't you a convict? They're gonna say, weren't you a murderer? They're gonna use labels. How do you navigate these things, even as we're trying to correct them in the system at large? And so that narrative power, which culminates for our ambassadors in being able to tell your story. So we actually will co-produce content with our ambassadors that they can use however they want. If they're a nonprofit leader, they can use it at their nonprofit. You know, if they're Bobby and they want to do work in, in, through their artistry and express themselves that way, they'll do it that way. So it's, it's narrative power that culminates in an opportunity to use it with whatever impact you'd like. And that's an investment because they are the future leaders, they're the future storytellers. And then they become alumni. We bring in another cohort and they're a support system and they can tell you, they can give you context. When I wrote my first book, this is the trauma that resurfaced. This is what people reached out to me, sort of trying to redefine me all these years later. When I was in my first movie, this is what this was like. Um, this is the healing that I had to do. This is how I knew I had to take a step back. So we have all this context around owning your story, telling your story, and it's a bigger and bigger ecosystem. And to me, it's the biggest, most beneficial way to change the narrative is to just invest in the resources of the people that are doing 
Yo, that is amazing. I'm so excited about that. I didn't know that that's what that meant. So I'm glad that I asked. Yeah. I think that's one of the biggest things is like hearing, you know, people transition out of it and coming back into a world where they don't know what's going on. They don't have any contacts, like no money. They've been, you know, being dehumanized for so long. So I'm really happy to hear about like the holistic health and wellness part of it. Cause that should be the main focus before, you know, growing and building um, in a similar vein, like for people who, you know, are doing the work. So organizers for people who do work in nonprofits, but these really like sometimes life or death situations, um, what's going on. I want to know, like, how do you take care of yourself and what focus do you know you have for your employees and for all the people that you work with to make sure that y'all are keeping y'all's morale up and your mental health on par? Yeah, so for, for the ambassadors, you know, first and foremost, we have a mental health professional on staff, on retainer. It's like the number one thing about the program is that we have that investment. It stays in place you call her whenever you need her. Um, for staff, we have a similar thing, but it's through our benefits. You know, we have mental health options that we offer staff. We have days off that we offer staff. And you know, in times like the Justice for Julius work, we close the office at times. We close the office at times and we said, listen, this work is hard right now. We're gonna close the office because we know how disturbing what's happening is. And the unfortunate part of this work and why it's so important for me to do that proactively is that there were some people who were on the ground in Oklahoma who couldn't look away. And that continues to be the case at times that sometimes you can't look away because time is of the essence and the work that you're doing is of the essence. And so we have remarkable employees who are able to power through during those difficult moments where the stakes are life or death. And then, of course, recoup. Uh, refill and and take care of themselves through not just mental health, but just, you know, being able to talk about it as a group, you know, sometimes we'll talk about what we're experiencing. Uh, we did that a lot during the summer of 2020. We started talking about what we were experiencing, how we were connected to it. You know, people started sharing videos of police brutality um, on an almost daily basis. And, and some people thought it was the good of the work they were doing. You know, there were some people who wanted to be part of that narrative and so basically they're like, that's my lane. I'm gonna start retweeting these videos. And I started getting DMs off the chain about people like me getting beat up by police. And I'm like, wow, what do you think you're doing? <laughs> what do you think you're helping by sending me this video right now? Um, so it can be a lot, but being able to name it, talk about it and provide supports that are there for our staff. You know, for me personally, um, I also find fulfillment and repair in just talking to the ambassadors. Um, they've weathered more incredible things than I have weathered and to be able to talk to them and especially to see them win as they just continue like Bobby is just a he's a he's a monster he's a he's a rock star he's on a rocket ship he's doing incredible work so talking to Bobby is is a form of therapy for me and the same is true of other you know ambassadors and folks so so the, the wins of the work and the rewards of the work can sometimes bring some of that back to also Listening to you and learning from you about, you know, this area has been very inspiring. And as folks who, you know, we pride ourselves on, you know, having some type of give back, right, or caring about people, um, that's what we like to do by even letting our listeners listen to experts like you. And yeah, I still think about like, hmm, what am, am I really doing anything in this space? Not really. Um, and even with other areas of social impact as well. Sometimes it feels like you're almost so overwhelmed with seeing stuff and hearing stuff every day that it's like, I don't even, 
I don't know. It's almost like I'm trying to block it out instead of trying to help it. And I say all that to say, what would you suggest is like a first step for somebody who wants to like, how do you block out the noise and choose something to maybe just like dive into? Because at the same time that I can say it's overwhelming, I also couldn't tell you any names right now of like cases or something that's happening currently. Mm -hmm. And so like, how do you take that first step to um, really just have, you know, being able to decide how to help or choose a way to, to be a part of this? Well, let me just say first, you know, be, become comfortable with the fact that some forms of change are systemic, meaning that you won't always see a face that is associated with the action that you're taking. But there is a whole lot of faces that your action plus a lot of other people's actions together can actually lead to. Voting is that way, boycotting, volunteering, and donating to an organization can absolutely be that way. So, so comfort yourself at times with the fact that there is not an individual story that you can point to that, will, that, that can give you that sense of gratification because it is often long work and incremental work to transform the system. The second piece, um, you can't go wrong supporting system impacted leadership. I'm, a, I'm just gonna say that. You cannot go wrong when you invest in the people who have been most harmed and when you invest in their leadership. There's a number of organizations that we work with and we shout them out every single time so that people can understand that they're doing the work and, and, and can support them. Uh, and often the film campaigns that we do, that's a central focus, that's a, like a goal, drive support and drive supporters to, be, to these organizations. So at Represent Justice, we do a very intentional job of connecting people to those types of groups. You can obviously follow us and, and you know, we're one organization that's a connector um, very intentionally and through proximity. The third piece, just very explicitly, as far as the first step, it's got to start with educating yourself because if you just take, if you skip to action right away, um, you can cause harm in some, in some cases. So you either got to be educating yourself in parallel, um, you know, you can be reading Just Mercy uh, by Brian Stevenson. You can be reading Writing My Wrongs by Shaka Sangor. Shout out Shaka and his second book, Letters to the Sons of Society. Shaka's on our board. He's a phenomenal, not just storyteller, but he's a phenomenal advocate and leader in the space. Um, so supporting system impacted leadership and the voices of people who are impacted, as well as educating yourself at the same time. Books, movies, the two that I named are very, very impactful. Um, but education as you're taking the action so that you're sort of checking yourself. You're sort of checking, like, am I actually doing the work? It influ influencers, back to our earlier conversation, influencers who get straight to the action because they ain't got time for e education, they cause harm. And so that prox that's why I'm, I talk about that moment of proximity and taking the moment to go into a prison facility, you know, with a guy like Common as being so important. He knew that education educating himself, touching down with the people was what he had to do first as he was acting. The cameras will come, the press will come, you know, the, the narrative influence will come. Educate yourself first, get proximate first, and then take your action. And when you're taking your action, prioritize system impact and leadership and voices, and, and you really can't go wrong. Thank you for that. Um, that was really encouraging, and I love that it was so tactical. Um, because it does give you a place to like really center in like first let's just start with Google and see who's doing the work. <laughs> what can you learn and as you learn about things something may call to you or you know you want to support them or whatever but uh, thank you for that that was actually very helpful. Yeah, and you know, at we rep justice on Twitter and Instagram. This is this is the crux of what we do when we're talking about public demand education 
proximity, and then connecting people to an action. So represent justice organizations like us, this is what we do. And so, you know, that is, I don't, I don't recommend shorthand for your own personal education in any case, but to the extent that you want to align yourself with an organization that is doing that work and who can educate you and connect you, uh, that's what our campaigns are about. That's what our ambassador program and the types of storytelling we do is about. Man, y'all see why I was so excited. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Daniel, for coming and educating us and sharing practical like ways to actually get involved. I feel like a lot of times it is the overwhelm that keeps people from doing things. Um, and so he gave like six tips of quick ways to get involved, educate yourself, you can donate, volunteer. Um, where can people find you? Uh, so can you go through your handles again? Yeah, absolutely. Well, just for me, me personally, and I, you know, I talk as much about our work. I, I talk the most about our work, uh, second to <laughs> second to us uh, at Daniel Forkio on on uh, social media, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, Represent Justice is at We Rep Justice uh, on all forms of social media. And just to give people a sense of one thing that we're going to be working on in the coming months, uh, gender inclusive justice is a sort of not enough reported area of transforming the justice system. Women are the fastest growing prison population since 1980. They've grown by 800%. Um, and most of the legislation that exists currently sort of focuses on only pregnant women. And so it's very myopic. It's very small in how they define what justice or dignity looks like for women who are impacted by the justice system. Doesn't address the coercive dynamics uh, that women uh, face or any of the other things that women are facing. That is going to be a focus of ours from a narrative as well as structural perspective. Uh, we have a film coming out called Apart that we're going to be organizing around. It's going to be on PBS on premiere in February, but it really looks at the war on drugs as it impacts women and specifically women in Ohio. There's going to be a lot of different actions that you can take that are specific, not just to Ohio, but also to the broader movement to bring justice to women and mothers who are in the system. Um, and so definitely look out for that type of work, uh, as well as a lot of other things that we're going to be doing during 2022. Um, but uh, at We Rep Justice on all forms of social media, uh, visit us at representjustice.org and lean in, you know, lean in. That's the first step. Just lean in and, and, and you will feel compelled to take deeper and deeper action. Just lean in. Awesome. Thank you. And what was the name of that movie one more time? Or did you say uh, the film is called Apart, A-P-A-R-T. Perfect. So y'all definitely check that out. Go follow We Rep Justice and at Daniel Forchio. And then we also end every episode with a question of the week. And I'm going to shoot it to you first, Daniel. Um, and I added it after you already looked at the outline. So hopefully you didn't see it, but maybe you did. Okay. <laughs> the question is, what can you do today that you weren't capable of a year ago? Capable as in you, like you really you could? couldn't do it. I mean, you can take it however you want to, but what's one, like, what's something you can do for interpretation? Yeah, that you couldn't do a year ago today. That is such a diff difficult question. What am I capable of doing? Does it have to be related to my work, Carly? Oh, no, 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 no. Related to anything? Yeah. Look, it could be those 300 sit-ups. Look, I'm about to say, can you surf now or cook a dinner? <laughs> uh, I can, I can, um, hike Griffith straight up the mountain as opposed to zigzagging around. That's something I can do today that I couldn't do uh, a year ago. So climb a mountain 
and get all the way to the top top, by the way. Not the not the observatory top, but the top top. That's, that's <laughs> <laughs> it's always yeah, cool to see physical improvement like that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Clear. Oh, but I'm looking at you. What can you do today that you weren't capable um, of a year ago? I have a couple because I'm not good at just doing one thing. Um, but I can like my personal record, my PR for lifting, um, like my hip thrust is higher, my squats are higher, like all of my like strength has gone up, um, which is awesome. Um, my mile time has gone down, so I got to work on that. But then something else I can do is I organize flowers now, so I make my own bouquets, and that's cool. not something that I used to do, so. Yeah, that's super cool, so a new skill. Um, for me, I'll say what I can do today that I wasn't capable of a year ago is, um, What's the opposite of micromanage? <laughs> letting people, <laughs> letting people do what they need to do. Yeah, I, I've always kind of delegated, but now it's like, oh, I, can, I super delegate. Like, I don't, I can tell you to do something without trying to also tell you how to do it. Right. Um, and that's helpful because I was thinking about just how much more time and space I have now when I actually just let y'all rock. So that's what mine is. That's a great one. Yeah, so thank y'all for tuning in. Um, Hit us at Carly's Couch. Let us know what you thought about the episode. Let us know how you're going to lean in and support We Rep Justice and other organizations in the spaces that you care about. And I guess we'll see y'all next week. We got to put the campaign together for the episode now. Look, (laughs) we got to raise raise a dollar or something. (laughs) I got you. We'll figure it out. out. Thank you, Daniel, for being here. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate you, too.